You're listening to the Inspired Legacy Podcast on the Edify Podcast Network. This is episode 79. Put God first. Hey guys, it's Mark, your host and founder of the Inspired Legacy. As always, this is the show that equips and inspires you to leave a godly legacy. Today's show is brought to you by Clickable. Every business has a unique story to tell, and when told correctly and consistently, it can be leveraged as an effective marketing tool. And that's where Clickable can help. They're in the business of brand storytelling because in business, the best story wins. To learn how Clickable can help grow your brand and business, visit Clickable.com. That's C-L-I-X-A-B-L-E.com to learn more. Okay, guys, I have another really interesting guest today. His name is Robert Certain. He was a pilot during the Vietnam War who was shot down, taken prisoner, and spent time in the infamous Hanoi Hilton. After his release, he transitioned his career and became a military chaplain, eventually obtaining the rank of colonel and serving at the headquarters of the Strategic Air Command, Air Mobility Command, and Air Force Academy, among many other stints. His resume is long and distinguished, including, I thought this was really cool, uh, he led all of the memorial services and the burial for former President Gerald Ford. In today's show, Robert unpacks his life story and talks about his experiences in the military as a POW, he talks about resilience and having a warrior spirit, having faith under fire, literal fire, finding perfect freedom in serving Christ, and discovering the hand of God in the very worst situations. This conversation I thought was a great reminder that while all things that happen to us might be painful, they can still be building blocks to become the kind of person that we hope to become. Sir, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to have you here. Um, so many people are probably not going to be familiar with who you are. So take a couple minutes. Give us a snapshot of who Robert Certain is, um, what you have going on at home in terms of marriage and kids and family and all that stuff. Okay. Well, my name is Robert Certain. I'm a native of Savannah, Georgia, educated in, in Georgia, then commissioned in the Air Force uh, for the Next four years after commissioning, I flew B-52s, including two tours of combat in Vietnam, uh, at the end of which I was shot down and captured, <coughs> excuse me, uh, and was in the Hanoi prison system uh, for about three and a half months before the war ended and they sent us home. After that, I became an Episcopal priest, stayed, <coughs> stayed serving in the Air Force as a reserve chaplain. Uh, for a total of uh, 30 years of service, uh, retired in that position in 1999, continued to work in parishes as a parish pastor uh, until I retired in 2012. And uh, have been something of a failure uh, in that regard because I've just finished four interims in the last four years. Uh, and so, so I continue to work at the request of the bishop, uh, even in retirement. Uh, my wife and I... <coughs> My goodness. My wife and I have been married for 49 years. Oh, wow. Uh, we have two children, uh, both married. Our daughter uh, has two sons, one of which is now in college. And uh, she followed kind of in my footsteps and that she, too, is an Episcopal priest. Uh, our son-in-law is a high school teacher, and our son 
uh, is a service manager for a car dealership, as is his wife. So um, they live, they all live in Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay. <laughs> and uh, we live here in San Antonio. We moved to uh, Blue Skies of Texas West or Air Force Village 2 uh, several years ago to retire and to live a more healthy and vibrant life. Very good. Well, before I forget, thank you for your service. We're going to unpack uh, a little bit of that today as well as everything else. Um, it's funny that you're, you've got ties to Little Rock. My daughter, one of my daughters lives in Rogers, Arkansas, which is oh, just okay. not far away, not too far. Well, you've got a new autobiography out. It's titled uh, Unchained Eagle. And that's obviously all about your life. But tell us a little bit about that book. Well, it's actually not all that new. It was published first in 2003. Oh, okay. And uh, we reprinted it a couple of times since then. But uh, currently, uh, it's only available in Kindle. It started out as a as an attempt to do one thing my wife had been asking me to do for about 30 years, and that's to write down the war story. Uh, and then I also uh, used it with a uh, psychologist at the vet center in California, uh, trying to struggle through the impact of post-traumatic stress and how it continued to affect my life. Uh, seems like you can take the boy out of the war, but sometimes it's hard to take the war out of the boy. Uh, so, um, I would show her the, the my writings, and uh, and then she could quiz me what was going on, and then then eventually after I'd written the war story down, uh, then I was giving a presentation at a Rotary Club in Palm Springs, California, when a man came up to me and said, "Do you have a book in that?" I said, "Well, I've got about hundred pages or so." but I can't decide how to continue the book. <clears throat> and uh, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I could use it as a case study for post-traumatic stress reactions, or I could use it as a spiritual journey to show how I believe that God was working in my life. He said, well, if you'll write the second story, I'll publish it. Wow. So I finished it, continued to write and it, uh, so the book starts basically with uh, with my combat experience in Vietnam and ends around 2000 uh, when I when we went to print. So, so so that's kind of the the journey. And so I had a chapter dedicated to each of the parishes I served in Texas and Mississippi and Tennessee, Texas again. Arizona and finally California. Uh, since then, I've served churches in Georgia, and then four more interim positions. Five, I served as a supplemental priest at a parish in Roswell, Georgia, when I first retired, and uh, then four interim pastorates of six to nine months here in South Texas in the last four years. So the story doesn't continue that far yet. Okay. I may, I may decide to go back and open it up again and, and write the addendum to it. So is it currently only available as an ebook? Uh, on the, yes. 
I say that only because there are people who have received printed copies who are selling them on the used book market. Okay. The last report I got was that somebody wanted 500 bucks for it. But nah, he didn't pay more than 20. So <laughs> no, don't think so. <laughs> Just to get the Kindle book. Well, we will be sure to link to it in the show notes so everybody can find a copy of it because it sounds like, I haven't read it, but it sounds like an amazing story. And so I kind of want to unpack that a little bit more. So okay. uh, as much as we can without giving the thing away, uh, even though it is not new, I'm going to have to fire my producer that told me that it was new. <laughs> the, my producer is me, by the way. I see. Well, he took, <laughs> it's new to him. It's new to me. Um, so let's go all the way back. What led you to join the military? Well, um, I was always, as a boy, fascinated with aviation. Uh, in, growing up in Savannah, Georgia, there was an Air Force base nearby at the time. Uh, and so I loved watching airplanes. I have, I have a brother who, who went into ROTC at the University of Georgia, uh, Air Force ROTC, and was became a pilot. And so I was a couple of years behind him and when I went to Emory University in Atlanta, there was an Air Force ROTC, so I joined that and uh, was able to get uh, a full-ride scholarship uh, from the Air Force. So at that point, I owed them uh, for my education, and uh, I took uh, pilot instruction in college, but didn't make it. Uh, they didn't, I didn't solo fast enough for the Air Force rules, which irritated me. So I went back and finished up my pilot's license anyway. But because of that, then when I graduated, I went to navigator training out in California. And then when I graduated from that school, then I had the opportunity to go to what's called navigator bombardier training uh, and uh, to learn to, to be a, a bombardier, basically. And then uh, chose to go to B-52s had a choice of two or three airplanes and uh, chose B-52s when I got my, got the, that, that passed me. So, so that's how I flew. And I, I was quite frankly, pretty good at it. I was an instructor pilot within a year of becoming operational. I was on the standardization evaluation team at Blytheville just before I went over for my second tour uh, to Guam. Uh, I'd gone over in 71 uh, as a flying B-52s out of Thailand, flew about 50 missions, flew 50 missions out of there, came home, uh, and then in December of 71, uh, got engaged. Uh, and then in May of 72, uh, the wing commander uh, announced to us that the wing was deploying to Guam, taking all of our airplanes. Uh, so uh, we, met, got, we got married in a fever. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> And then uh, six weeks later, uh, we flew the last two B-52s out of Blyville, Arkansas to Anderson Air Force Base on Guam and started flying combat from there. Uh, then, as you know, as irony would have it, uh, the day I was scheduled to go home was the day I was shot down. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, it was... Uh, it was one of those, oh, doggone it, things. And and uh, spent 100 days in prison. And then when I came home, uh, then the Air Force personnel officer 
who met us in the Philippines when we, the day after we came out of uh, Hanoi, uh, said, okay, I'm here to get your next assignment. Uh, the, Air, the Department of Defense is committed to giving, letting you have any assignment you want as long as you're medically capable of fulfilling it. So you can go to pilot training. You can go back to flight, navigate D-52s. You can choose another airplane. You can choose something else. What would you like to do? I said, well, I've been struggling for 10 years with a call to ordain ministry, so I really need to go to seminary. And he said, hmm, that's not on the list. I said, well, <laughs> I understand that. Uh, but there are three ways, it seems to me, we can do this. Uh, you can accept my resignation from the Air Force uh, this summer, and I'll, I'll go on my own. And uh, that's one. I'm a regular officer, so you can, I'll like, resign my regular commission, but keep a reserve commission, go to seminary on my own, and then come back on active duty. Like I'll fly airplanes, I'll be a chaplain, whatever the Air Force needs. And the third is the Air Force can send me. <laughs> so, so he went off for an hour or so, came back in a little bit and said, well, I called the command, commander of the Air Force Institute of Technology. And that's an organization in the Air Force that oversees uh, officers in civilian institutions getting master's degrees. Okay. And so the commander says, we will send you to seminary. You'll stay on active duty, full pan allowances. We'll pay all your tuition and fees. And then when you're graduating ordained, you'll we'll transition to the chaplaincy. Sounds like a good deal. But it was a really good deal. So, <laughs> so that's how that happened. And, uh, I stayed on active, that was 73, and then I stayed on active duty until 77, the fall of 77, uh, and uh, was had was not adapting well to the chaplaincy, uh, quite frankly. So I went to see the chief of chaplains. He let me go to the reserves, uh, and uh, as long as I stayed active in the reserves, and uh, so I Went to parish work, uh, first Kerrville, Texas, uh, for about a year and a half, and then was called to a parish in Mississippi, seven years there, reserve duty, first at Kelly Air Force Base in San Antonio, then Keesler in Mississippi, then yeah, then back to Blyville, Arkansas, where I'd flown B-52s. And then from Mississippi, we went to Memphis for five years, and then uh, moved to Harlingen, Texas, down on the Rio Grande, and then did reserve duty at Lackland Air Force Base. Uh, after a desert storm, I was assigned as the senior, I was a lieutenant colonel by then, uh, assigned as the senior reserve chaplain at Strategic Air Command Headquarters in Omaha. Right on. The Strategic Air Command closed about nine months later. I furled its flag and went out of business, and I was moved over to Air Mobility Command uh, in Illinois. was there for a couple of years, got an opportunity uh, to go to the Air War College in residence. And the War College is really a senior leadership school with long, long-term planning, large organizations, big budgets, that sort of thing. So I, I resigned the parish in South Texas, went to the War College. And when I came out, I got on staff of a very large Episcopal church in Scottsdale, Arizona, and uh, was reassigned to the Air Force Academy uh, as the 
by then I was a colonel in 06 uh, as a reserve chaplain and finished up my, my Air Force career uh, at the academy. And from Arizona, I went to Palm Desert, California. Stayed there nine years. Okay. You just covered a lot of ground there. I, I feel like we need to go back. Uh, but, but real quick, I, this is just a curiosity question. I wasn't planning on going here. Okay. But why does a chaplain go to war college? Is it strictly for the leadership training, like you mentioned? Or yes. Okay. Yes. Well, you know, military chaplains have a need to know what's going on with their par- parishioners, their sure. military parishioners, the senior officers, as well as the junior enlisted. And so uh, to understand the pressures that were being faced by senior commanders uh, was an important thing. Uh, and uh, and there had not been, there, there were only like four reserve seats in the War College. And I, met, I, don't, I managed to get one of those. Oh, I was wow. the fourth alternate for the four seats. Uh, and so, I didn't think I was going because it was gotten so late. And then I got a call in the summer saying, are you still available? I said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, we need you to go to the work college. We just the last, you're our last hope to fill the seat. And if you don't take it, we have to pay for it anyway. And we'll lose next year. We won't get that seat. Oh, I said, hmm. Okay, well, I'm not going to mess it up for future chaplains and and future reservists. Uh, I'll leave the parish. The parish didn't want me to go, so I said, too bad. (laughs) I'm going. Uh, And that's how it happened. And it was, um, I got to do some interesting things. I wrote a paper for the chief of staff of the Air Force at his request on how reserve chaplains had been used during Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Mm. Uh, and uh, and so he he gave me rave reviews about it. Said it was really important uh, think piece uh, that that he was going to send over. The I'd already sent a copy to Chief of Chaplains, but he was going to encourage him to to rethink the way in which reserve chaplains were used in the future. Uh, so that was that was sort of beneficial, I think, uh, both for me because the next my next parish assignment was from a very large Episcopal church and then another very large Episcopal church. So I had gotten a lot of uh, leadership and budget planning and budget building experience and training at the War College in Alabama. Wow. Well, with only four seats available, it was quite an honor to be selected then. It really was, even if I was the bottom of the barrel (laughs) at the end of the day. (laughs) Well, let's go back to uh, the Vietnam era. So you get out of college, and it doesn't sound like you went immediately to Vietnam. Well, no, I had to go to training first. Training, so I okay. Got, I graduated from college in June of '69, uh, and it was two years later, 1971, in the summer of '71, that I went over the first time. Gotcha. Okay, so you're over in Vietnam, '71, '72 time frame. Um, what does, you know, you flew, you mentioned, I think you mentioned, or I read somewhere, you flew a hundred missions in total. Right. What did they get easier over time? If, after doing a hundred of them, does it kind of become old hat or was each one unique and challenging? Well, they were mostly old hat. Uh, you know, the, the first time out to shoot takes was a little bit interesting. Um, flying out of Thailand, it was just a, like a four to four and a half hour round trip. 
and we would fly up over uh, the target area. Would be directed then that we'd be directed to the site by a ground radar system because it, but mostly were non-reflective sites. Uh, we were trying to interdict the Ho Chi Minh Trail and make it un- impassable, uh, and then uh, and then uh, those those missions were kind of routine. Uh, we never the Strategic Air Command didn't like for B-52s to go into high threat areas where they could get shut down yeah. because we were part of the nuclear tri- triad, and the command didn't want to lose those heavy bombers because it might embolden the Soviets uh, to think they they didn't have to worry about us. Uh, when we so we came back and then when we went over, we took our those were in D model B-52s. And so when we went back, we had Gs, which were a couple of newer versions. Uh, and those were long. Those were 13 hours round trip. Oh, wow. From Or 14 sometimes from Guam in the middle of the Pacific all the way over to Southeast Asia and back. So, you know, those were long missions with targets in the middle. Sure. And, uh, the navigator... The navigator was sort of, in my opinion, uh, is the guy. He's the director of the crew. He's not in charge of the crew. That's the pilot. But the navigator is responsible for courses, uh, making sure that you're on time, uh, making our time tolerances were pretty tight, mm-hmm. 30 seconds at the most off. And I tried to get in under 15 always. Uh, sometimes if we had to refuel with a tanker uh, to get fuel en route and I had to find that tanker and get behind and direct the pilot behind him. Uh, and, and then the, the navigator line was a guy who lined up the airplane uh, on to the initial aiming point for the bomb run. And then the bombardier took over and the navigator was his backup. Okay. And then I had to navigate the airplane back home. <laughs> and so just to clarify, you were the navigator, correct? Yes. Okay. Critical role. Well, pretty much. Yeah. And, and in those days, the navigation was done by celestial uh, when you're over the ocean. Really? And and in daytime, you could, you could, uh, we had a, a sextant, you could take an observation of the sun. And then you, with the, with the radar system, we could measure our absolute altitude over the water. And where those two lines crossed is approximately where the airplane was. Wow. <laughs> at, at night, we'd take observations of three different stars uh, and then that we could locate and knew which where they were and what where they were supposed to be. And that would give us a triangle and the airplane would be approximately in the center of the triangle. Sounds like a lot of math. Yeah, well, this has got a, a good bit of math. Yeah, that, well, that rules me out for that job. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you eventually get shot down, you and your crew. Right. Um, tell us about that. What What was going through your mind when you knew you were going down? Uh, getting out of that airplane was the first thing. Yeah. Uh, well, the first thing was that that we knew we lost our radar set. We lost the electrics. So when the surface air missile, surface air missiles actually blow up in front of you. Okay. They don't hit the airplane, but then they send out bazillion pieces of metal, shrapnel, 
1,800 feet per second that's really zooming at you. Yeah. If that engines ingest a piece of metal, it destroys the engine. Uh, we had metal come through the airplane, um, mortally wounded the pilot, mm. killed the gunner, started fires, and so uh, and and destroyed the damaged our electrical systems and hydraulic systems. So uh, when we lost electrics and just we were 10 seconds to go on the bomb run. We were this close to getting those bombs out. And when the, the crew started checking in, we we knew the pilot was badly wounded. We we were pretty sure the gunner was dead. Uh, and uh, when I looked around to check for damage around my situation, my seat, there was a fire behind me in, in the, the forward wheel well where the front landing gear was which is right in front of the bomb bay. So my next thought was to get the bombs out because we didn't know exactly where they would fall. We safetyed them to drop them. Uh, And then then my next thought was, well, that fire is right below the main mid-body fuel tank. And about that time, one of the other crew members upstairs ejected and the pilot was still alive, but he ordered ejection. And so I got ready and he went out the top and I went out the bottom. Uh, and then later, uh, the co-pilot who was apparently wounded badly and died later, uh, and the bombardier got out. And then the three, three of us were picked up, captured and imprisoned and three died. So mm-hmm. the pilot, the co-pilot and the gunner all died that night. And the electronic defense officer, bombardier, and the navigator uh, all survived and were captured. So after I, you know, I ejected and uh, at 33,000 feet, right at the bomb release point, I had to free fall for about two minutes to get down to 15,000 feet. Parachute opened and I was hanging right over the target. Uh, But the wind shifted. I drifted off to the west, touched down, and we had a full moon and uh, surrounded kind of quickly, captured fairly quickly, uh, and then taken into custody. Wow. And on so, the way down, I said, oh, you know, that I've been, I've been a man of prayer my whole, basically my whole life. I was raised to never know a time when I didn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So my thoughts going down were, were prayers about, you know, if I'm going to be tortured and killed on the ground, just keep the parachute in the back and let me hit the dirt. Sure. When the parachute opened, then my thought was, okay, God, I guess I'm going to be a POW, so it's you and me. And uh, there's there we went. Wow. So, okay, I'm just curious. How many total crew members were there? Six. Six, okay. Wow. So three. Were team, we were teams of two. We had the pilots, two pilots, the defense team, which was an electronic warfare officer who tried to jam anything looking at us, and a tail gunner. And then downstairs was the offense team, the navigator and the bombardier. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. 
Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. So talk about your POW experience. What was that like? Well, the first night was the most tense uh, because I didn't know. I was, as far as I knew, I was the first B-52 crew member to be captured in Vietnam. And so I didn't know whether they'd kill me, torture me, send me to Soviet Union, or what they'd do with me. Uh, and then the, my electronic warfare officer and I were brought together within an hour or two and transported slowly into Hanoi and into the Wallo prison, which we call the Hanoi Hilton, uh, and then put in separate, uh, separate interrogation rooms and interrogated through the night, threatened uh, beaten once or twice. And, uh, and then the next day, uh, we were given the prison garb still, still in separate spaces and, uh, uh, taken in front of the international press corps, which was not a bad thing because they took us in one at a time. And uh, when I saw all those <coughs> Europeans, with cameras in front of me. I were a bank of microphones too, but I wasn't going to say anything. Uh, but I did look at every camera to make sure they had an opportunity to get a good shot of my face, a good shot of both profiles. Uh, and then uh, no, knowing that once those pictures went out on the wire services, the Vietnamese weren't going to kill me. They'd have to account for me. And so then I was confident that that was going to be okay. Mm. Uh, living conditions weren't all that great uh, but uh, it could have been a lot worse could have been as bad as the long-held prisoners who were brutalized yeah so how do you feel that your time as a pow shaped who you are today well or just your whole experience in the in vietnam well you know first of all it gave me a deep empathy for uh men and women in uniform, uh, first responders of all kinds who go into danger uh, and for the good of other people. Right. They don't run away from danger. And so there's that empathy for, uh, for marital separation. Mm. You know, as a clergyman, then I'd, I have dealt with families who have been separated sometimes because of enmity between parents. But in the military, it's because the military member has been sent somewhere without his family. Uh, and so there's that. There are uh, empathy for people who are caught in, in situations that are deadly. And that can be bad marriages, bad jobs, uh, you know, drug addictions, alcohol addictions, all kinds of things that, and diseases. And so having been in a situation where that I didn't want to be in, I couldn't get out of because I had no power then it gives me a, I think it's given me a better understanding of that. Mm. Uh, the, uh, I think when in my work with young people, by my own children and others in the church and in the air force and basic training for enlisted and basic cadet training for officers, um, to recognize that you can get through things that are very difficult. Sometimes you just have to do it one minute at a time, one day at a time, whatever, but you can get through it. And so when I would uh, 
first of all, when I'd run into somebody who was ready to quit because it was too hard, I'd say, but wait a minute, You're, you have an end point. You know this is going to be over in 10 days or two weeks or something. Uh, and, you know, you can, you can get through this. Remember what your dream is. Remember why you're here, why you came here, what you wanted to do with this. And, you know, God will help you get through this. Mm-hmm. And then when, as my children grew up, um, when they, especially when they got into their young 20s, I thought, you know what? These guys, these are adults, starting with college, really. I said, I knew, I knew how I was in college. In college, I was independent. You know, I was several hundred miles from my parents. Uh, in the Air Force, in my, you know, when I, when I was 23, I was trained by the Air Force to deliver nu- nuclear weapons to the Soviet Union. And I th- when I son turned, son tw- turned 23, my thought was, what was the president thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, and to be able to, <clears throat> rather than being a helicopter parent, you know, hovering over them to try to help them make their right decisions, to be a confident parent that said, you know, I knew I knew how I was, and I hope I've raised you this way, so that you can make decisions in difficult circumstances, make your own mistakes, learn from your own mistakes, and grow from your own mistakes. So, well, that's that. a lot of a lot of good life lessons right there. Um, you you touched on the fact that after. Your, uh, you, you came to a fork in the road in your military career where you decided to, once you got home, that is, you decided right. to go to seminary and become a priest. Um, you, you said you, you don't know a time in your life when you didn't know Jesus. Right. So you were, it sounds like you were just born into the church and it's just kind of always been a part of who you are. Oh, yeah. As a boy, my, my parents were very devout Methodists. Um, and uh, we were in church three times a week. You know, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday evening prayer meetings. Part of the youth group, all that sort of thing that we did growing up. Uh, family devotions around the dinner table every day. Uh, so all of that was just became part of the fabric of who I was as a young boy. Yeah. When I was about 15 was when I first came to believe that maybe God was calling me to, to be a pastor. Oh, wow. Just prove that God has very bad judgment. <laughs> you know, so, and what it did was make me nervous. It didn't. It was uncomfortable. Uh, and so, um, and then when I went to seminary, and so, it, so I, I struggled against it about every other year for a decade before yeah. I finally went. And then when I went to seminary and I started reading the stories of people like Moses and Abraham. And Isaac and Jacob and jo- Joseph and Gideon and Paul and all the rest. God almost always chooses people who who probably don't think they measure up, right? And who fight against it. And I thought I was being unique. <laughs> so <laughs> I discovered no, I'm not unique. And yes, this is somewhat discomforting, even fearful. Uh, but I'm in good company. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, as as so you learn to say, okay, the reason God chooses people who are old warriors 
people who have done things that that were not in the direct line of, of from point A to point B is because that way uh, nobody will say, isn't he smart? <laughs> but rather say, look what God did with that dodo. Right. So, That's a good point. Yeah. We don't yeah. do it on our own. We do it because we of don't. God. Yeah. So what a blessing to have your faith intact when you get shut down. Cause like you said, you're praying as you're, you know, falling from the sky, parachuting how I'm curious, how did your faith, obviously your, your faith helped you as a POW, but how did that man manifest itself? Um, practically speaking, like did other prisoners know that you had a faith and did that, did they experience that or did you, it was a pretty much an internal only dialogue? No, it became public with the, group of prisoners I was with, uh, um, first of all, we were, there was, I had one cellmate for a month or so. And then we were put in with uh, six or seven other guys. And so once we had a group of people to talk to, then we talked about all sorts of things. Sure. Usually favorite foods, <laughs> what we we're going to do when we got home. Um, and then in February of 73, the uh, the treaty was signed, and we knew it, and people were able to start getting care packages from home. Two things happened. One is uh, the North Vietnamese uh, jailers told us we could we could meet on Sundays if we wanted to for prayer. That's surprising, so, actually. So at that point, they asked me if I would, since they knew that I wanted to go to seminary by then, if I would help lead that. And then one of my cellmates got a uh, package from home. He was a single man. His mother sent him a book of common prayer, an Episcopal book of common prayer. And one of the debates we were having is, would we be home for Easter? We'd been in prison and Christmas. Would we be home for Easter? And when I saw that prayer book, I said, give me that. Because in the back of the prayer book was a table of Easter days. And so we can, we looked it up. And we knew that since we were the last captured, we would be the last to be released. And that day was going to be the 29th of March of 73. And Easter was going to be in early April. So at that point, we said, all right, we're going to be home. Good news. Going to be home for Easter. Second piece of good news. We knew when Lent started. And so we could observe Lent. Give up something for Lent. And, you know, it's, that was hard to find something to give up in prison, but <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we all gave up something. And then uh, we could use the prayer book as a worship guide. So we started using the Book of Common Prayers, morning prayer, evening prayer services uh, for our time together on Sundays. And then we discovered, now not everybody came in to the cell where we were doing that. But we, what we discovered was the North Vietnamese uh, guards wouldn't require us to go back to our individual cells for afternoon lockdown until that worship service was over. Really? So that meant we could have. Everybody got benefited by us dragging this out as long as we could. Yeah. What a blessing to receive that prayer book. She probably, that, that guy's wife or uh, mom who sent that probably had no idea 
What a blessing that no, would be to you guys. She thought she, that her son would just get some comfort from reading the prayers and the wow. Psalms that were in there. Unbelievable. Um, wow. Well, okay. Now I got to go through my, uh, my list of questions here. We've kind of bounced around a little bit. So you've touched on, uh, you gave us a little bit of a snapshot of, of your time as a priest, uh, which is, I'm going to list this in the show notes. You've got quite a, if I can call it a resume, it's pretty impressive. Uh, you oversaw, yeah. oversaw funeral services for president Ford. Yes. The Fords were parishioners and friends in California. Uh, and, uh, he even attended my retirement from the air force Wow! at the air force Academy. Uh, and, uh, so as the parish priest and I was tasked to work with him and Mrs. Ford to develop their funeral services. And so he died at Christmas of, uh, 2006. And so then I flew with the family and his body to DC officiated his funeral and the national cathedral and then flew with them to Grand Rapids, Michigan and did another service there in the parish where he and Betty had gotten married and then over, over to uh, the Ford museum in Grand Rapids for the disposition of the body uh, over there and then flew back to, to Palm Springs with Mrs. Ford. What an honor. So I'm curious as a, as a former combat aviator, Mm-hmm. and POW and priest. You've got a, a lot of diverse uh, life experiences. Oh, yes. What period, yeah, what period of time, what period of time taught you the most about life? And I know that's a probably a pretty hard question to answer, but. I'm not sure I'm finished with that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's uh, look at it a different way. With all that you've seen and done, what, what did you learn about yourself as a man? Well, you know, the, uh, for one thing that, that my life experience had done, I think, is make me committed, you know, committed to my family, not just, you know, my wife and my children, grandchildren, but also my siblings uh, and their children and grandchildren. Uh, they all form part of my daily prayer routine. Uh, we're planning. We lost one of our brothers a year ago, uh, not due to COVID, uh, but uh, we haven't been able to get together since he died. And so we're now that we're finally a little bit more comfortable with traveling, we're going to meet in September uh, as siblings and spouses uh, to uh, memorial, and it'll be his birthday. Would have been his birthday, and so we can have our one year delayed grief time together, mm-hmm. but we've always been a tight family. Uh, the grandchildren, our, our children uh, refers to the group as the Fogam, the family of Glenn and Myrtle. Glenn and Myrtle were my par- our parents. And so there's like 65 of them in the, in the downline. Sure. And that, so that next generation has been very close too. Uh, so that's, so that kind of family commitment, and then being part of the Air Force, uh, being committed to the people you go to war with, which is which is the primary uh, commitment people have in their fighting units. You know, this to each other. Mm-hmm. It's not to the flag. It's not to apple pie. 
it's to survival. Yeah. And that was the same experience we had in prison. Uh, the Vietnam POW community is very tight. Uh, and I always thought, well, I was hardly there. <laughs> you know, I'm, I was a Johnny come lately, got there late. And I really don't think I have anything in common with these guys. And uh, I kind of got busy doing church things. And then they found me and said, wait a minute, you, got, you need to be there. We want, these were the old guys. The guys have been there four, five, six years. We, you P-52 guys are important to us because you got us home. Uh, so, and the, I discovered that commitment, which has now lasted over 48 years of getting tight relationships, close commitments to people that I barely knew or didn't know while I was in prison. So, so learning about that commitment, being committed to Christ and his church mm. uh, has been a strong thing. And the church, goodness knows, you know, since the 1960s, churches have not been committed to one another. No. People get mad and go form another church or, or go to a different denomination or split or something. And uh, I thought, no, that's not the way to do this. Yeah. Uh, the way to do this is you be reconciled and agree to disagree about some things, particularly the political issues, mm -hmm. uh, because nobody has the mind of God in its fullness. Correct. And, and anybody who claims that this is God's will, uh, be, be cautious around them. They say, it seems to me that this is an area that where God is working. That I can believe, because I think well, God works in all circumstances. Uh, sometimes in ways that we don't want, <laughs> and sometimes in ways that surprise us, but is there. And so searching for the hand of God at work in the world around us is a big deal. And if we're committed to one another, when we disagree with one another, we might be able to find we're both wrong in some ways, we're both right in some ways, and when we're both right in some ways, we might actually overlap the will of God. Yeah. And I think that that's maybe one area where the church body has forgotten to look at the world around them and, and look for how God is at work when things right. on the surface seem so bad and so dire yeah. and pe people are losing hope. You know, they, they're, we're forgetting to look at uh, where God is working miracles and maybe not right. miracles, we, but he's, he's working. And sometimes we refuse to look there. So if we disagree, say with a, political foot figure, then we write them off and disregard anything they have to say or do instead of saying, okay, I disagree with this position, but is God working in this person's life right. to bring good about? And we, we expand that into looking at historic figures and say, oh, this historic figure did something 200 years ago that we disapprove of today. Therefore, we can't learn anything from them. Mm. And I tell people when they get into that, that direction, I said, you know, if we eliminated all the sinners out of the Bible, we'd only have two people left, right. Jesus and his mother. So, <laughs> you know, so I think we need to rethink this whole thing about erasing human, human beings and their whole fullness out of their historical position. Mm -hmm. And instead, look and say, "Okay, they did this that we we would we think is wrong, but what did they do 
that had good results. I said there, and I tell people, you know, there is only one law that's ever, that has never ever been violated in the history of humanity. And that's the law of unintended consequences. You know, Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they were convinced it it was a good thing. That would have good results. It would make them like God. See, they hadn't read the Bible. (laughs) Where where it says that on the sixth day of creation, God created man, male and female. He created them in his own likeness and image. He created them. They were already in the likeness and image of God. And then Satan comes in and messes all that up. And so, so, uh, you know, how does, how does God, how did God work through situations like the Egyptian uh, um, enslavement? Mm -hmm. How did God work through the selling of Joseph into Egypt? How did God work through Jacob, who was a sneaky little brat who kept doing all kinds of things? Uh, to his brother and to steal his birthright? How did God work through Gideon, who was a coward hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat, can't thresh wheat in the in a hole, um, and became a general? How did God work through Saul of Tarsus, who was on his way to Damascus to, to arrest and, and persecute the followers of the way? You know, how did... We don't approve of the, some of the things that we see about these characters, David, Solomon, all kinds of characters. And yet, when we look at, you know, the, the nice thing about the Hebrew scriptures, and in fact, the New Testament too, is that they, the scriptures don't varnish the characters that God uses. And says, you know, here are all these characters out there who are sinners, who do dumpster things, who who back away from their commitments, who, who betray and, and deny and all the rest of it, and yet God uses them to bring good into the world. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we look around, we need, there's a, there's a baptismal promise in the Episcopal prayer, baptismal service that says, the question is, will you seek and serve Christ in all persons? Loving your neighbor as yourself. And the thing about if you're going to love Christ in all persons, you don't need to be looking at their sinfulness. You need to be looking at the image of God that was planted there in their creation and their baptisms and their their lives and look for the good in them. Yeah. And then the neighbor as yourself business comes from the story of the Good Samaritan, where the only person that was that was a good neighbor was the hated enemy. All the people, all the heroes of the faith didn't help that poor guy laying by the side of the road because their religious duties uh, were more important to them than the care of somebody who had been knocked down. And so we need to look at each other with that. And I tried to teach my children to do that. uh, And I think they've done a really good job of teaching their children. Such good reminders. Well, as we wind down here, um, one of my last questions for anybody listening, for guys who want to lead well, for guys who want to become better husbands, fathers, and men, what parting words of wisdom would you have for those guys? 
spend as much time as you can with your family. Mm. You know, Amen. No, nobody in retirement says, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. But a lot of us wish we'd spent more quality time with our spouses and our children. And I'm one of those. I was so busy working for the Lord, I didn't do the Lord's work uh, all as well uh, with my own family as I did with other people. Yeah. And I regret a lot of that, but uh, I, uh, my children and I have made up for all of that over time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's important to our, our spouses and our children are great gifts of God uh, that fulfill us. We are not full human beings. Adam was not a full human being until Eve was around. And we're, so we, we're not full human beings until we are in community. And our best community is family. And whether it's spouse and children or siblings and parents, it's family or military units. Sure. It's family. And that's where it's those relationships I think we need to spend our time with and not whatever it is that earns us money. Amen to that. I feel like you've kind of already answered my next and my final question. I'll ask it anyway. When you think of legacy, lots of things come to mind when people hear that word, but if Robert certain were to leave an inspired legacy, what does that phrase mean to you? For me, it's um, caring for people after you've finished your work. You know, caring for the people who are doing the work that you once did (coughs) and and being, being the elder statesman, sharing your experience, sharing your, your mistakes, uh, helping people understand uh, their own trajectory, their own growth, and understand how all of that is in the hand of God. It's mm, good stuff. Sir, I've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I want to thank you again for your service and your time here today. Thanks for sharing your story, and we'll be sure to link over to your Kindle book. And let us know if you end up uh, finishing that final chapter. (laughs) I'm not sure there's a final chapter yet, but I might add a couple more. Right. Well, thank you again. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Guys, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, share it with a friend and subscribe to the show so you don't miss future episodes like the one you heard today. And be sure to check today's show notes for all the ways you can stay plugged into the Inspired Legacy, including my free download called Nine Ways to Be a Better Dad. You can sign up for my free weekly devotional called Inspired Inbox, and you can join the private Facebook group, a community of other like-minded men looking to become the best husbands and fathers they can be. So get plugged in, like, subscribe, leave a review, and help more guys find the show because we need more men battling together for the sake of the next generation. Until next time, live inspired.